Good morning. Today is Sunday, November 18th, 2018, and today we're studying Old Testament lesson number nine, Empowered for a Destiny. Okay, so I think I've got it working now. What I wanted to tell you folks was that I handed out today a couple of handouts that I want to explain to you. Uh, You've got the lesson for number 10, that's obvious, and we don't have this class next week. It's going to be Thanksgiving Sunday. I won't be here. Many of you won't be here. And so we will be meeting the following Sunday, however, and... um, I think that that's going to be like December 2nd, I believe. And uh, then we'll be meeting on December 9th. December 16th is going to be uh, one service, one one service at 10 o'clock. So we won't be meeting then either. And then we're into Christmas and we won't really meet until January. So that kind of helps you with your schedule a little bit. Let me tell you what I've handed out. Uh, I've handed out a... Uh, schedule of the sacrifices in the that are described in detail in the book of Leviticus, which describes the sacrificial system of Israel. This will be very helpful today. But what I want to talk about for just a moment is this little bookmark-looking thing that I gave you. I may have told you in the first class that I think one of the best devotionals you can use is the book of Psalms. And that's what this is, is that this is what I have found going through the book of Psalms, approximately the pace that you could go through to cover the Psalms in a month. And or you could do it at a slower pace, but that is about an equal distance over 30 different times, uh, the book of Psalms. If you do it in a month, I think that what you'll find is you'll find some really, really interesting, enlightening, illuminating passages that you can go back to later. But this gives you kind of a, uh, a topographical view of the whole book of Psalms, which is just tremendous. They have very, very many, about eight different types of what you would call literature. They have um, psalms of praise, of course. They have psalms of just surprise. They have psalms of disappointment. They have psalms of lamentation. They have psalms of grief. It covers the whole gamut of human emotions. And so, kind of like when we go on a tour, like we're going to go to Israel in October of 19, which I think is going to be fantastic, I've been there before, and you can, what what happens on these tours is that you see places that you want to go back to in more detail. You've done that before, and on other trips you've taken, where it was kind of, even though you were there physically, it's kind of an overview Well, that's what going through this will be like with Psalms. And you'll find some that just don't speak to you right now, but later they might, and then you'll go back and visit those Psalms. Anyway, it's a a very, very good way to do that. So I encourage you to use that in any way you find useful. Okay, what I'd like to uh, tell you today is that we are going to go through the uh, book of Leviticus, which is the sacrificial system of Israel. It's a very difficult study. (laughs) 
and I'll tell you why in just a moment. It's so difficult that I'm going to start with prayer right now. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father and God, I thank you so very much for this wonderful privilege you've given us to be with friends as we join hands figuratively and continue to seek your will and seek your uh, face in that we want to know you and get to know you better. Please open our hearts, our ears, and our minds to the lesson you have for us today. Your Son, Jesus Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I think it is useful for us to review just a little bit of what we have studied in the past. Uh, This is where we need to remember divine intentions and disharmony. We need to remember those things. So divine intentions was essentially that God created the universe in such a way that mankind the very crown of his creation, would have a wonderful, close, harmonious relationship with himself and God. That would make it possible for him to have, him, of course, as mankind, men and women, would make it possible for him to have a good relationship with himself. No mental illness, no stresses of the kind we're so used to, No uh, uh, mental disorders, uh, no ups and downs that uh, so uh, desperately hurt ourselves and hurt relationships. It allows for a great relationship with others. Once you have a good relationship with God and therefore have a good relationship with yourself, you can have a good relationship with others. And then that, of course, uh, will lead to you're having a good relationship and understanding of your stewardship and caring for the environment and nature. But all of that depended on obedience to God. All that harmony was uh, dependent upon that. And then we come to that bright and sweet picture of divine intentions to disharmony. And that basically talks about the fall, Genesis chapter 3. And here, because of the gift of God to man of free will... Mankind used that free will to turn against God. The idea being, I can do better than God can do. God's laws that he's given me, his commandments, they are really like crimping my style. It's really restraining me, boxing me in. I want to think broadly. I want to experience everything myself. I don't want him to tell me what I can and cannot do. I want to experience everything myself and go as far as I want in that. That personifies the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just that desire. And so what we have is we've got, as a result of that, turning back and revolting against God, we have disharmony where there is a breach in the relationship between man and God And therefore, man is subject to all the kind of disorders that we see today, that we experience ourselves at times. And of course, there's enmity between ourselves and others. And we have so abused nature all around us. But God does not leave man in that state of despair. He comes up with a plan by which he can preserve his own integrity and justice, that is to say, not say, oh, you know, it's okay. Even though you've sinned against me and you've broken my commandment, I'll still accept you. 
that would be a breach of God's integrity. So instead of doing that, what he's going to do is put into place a plan that starts with Abraham and goes through Calvary in the New Testament. So it's a long, it's a fairly simple plan that he says to Abraham, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing and then by you, through you, by you meaning his descendants, all the families on the earth will be blessed. Sounds like a pretty simple plan, but it gets pretty complicated <laughs> because basically the rest of the Old Testament's all about the unfolding of that plan over a long period of time. The Abrahamic covenant takes place in about 2100 B.C., and uh, so we're talking about at least a 2,000-year period of this plan unfolding. So when we say, where is God? Keep in mind, <laughs> God doesn't always do things fast, but he does it surely. So we had many of the uh, historical parts of the Old Testament. We went over that a little bit. We talked about uh, the dreams that Israel had and you know, how, are, how are these fabulous blessings that God has promised us? How are they going to play out? What's it going to look like? And uh, we talked about how God unified all these people together. And then we talk about the factors that kind of ensured that Israel would stay together and become an effective instrument in God's hands. And we mentioned all these different factors that played a part in unifying Israel and making it an effective tool in God's hand to allow his promises to play out. As you were reading those, maybe you thought, you know, there seems to be something missing here in terms of the factors. Isn't the elaborate sacrificial system of Israel missing from here as one of the elements? And yes, it was missing. And like so often in great literature, uh, what is not said is a deafening silence. And that's what this was. And so there's an entire lesson on that. And it's the most important single element in allowing Israel to reach its destiny. And that is the sacrificial system of Israel whose, whose objective was atonement. That's the objective of the sacrificial system of Israel, atonement. And an easy way to remember this, because it actually is etymologically correct, is at one meant. Think of that. It puts you and God at one. And the ancient uh, Latin word is actually very, it comes very close to that. It means to unify. So the whole idea is, is that the sacrificial system of Israel was designed to put back together the right relationship of God and man. It is an extremely difficult book to read. Besides uh, being close to being disgusted with all of the uh, very detailed descriptions of how the sacrifices are to be made and how the organs are to be disposed of and how you shake the blood on all the different liturgical instruments in the uh, tent of meeting. And uh, besides that, it is really foreign and alien to us. We don't understand sacrifices. We don't do it. 
And we don't remember any ancestors of ours that do it. The only people that do it now are people that we consider to be uh, really deviant and uh, quite odd. And so that's very difficult for us. The other thing that is very difficult is that we're told as we read the book of Leviticus, if you do these sacrifices in this way and that way, do it just the way I say, you will be forgiven. We're saying, wait a minute. I thought the only way to be forgiven was Jesus Christ. How is it that these people are being told they're going to be forgiven by engaging in these sacrifices? So those two things, the alienating uh, character of the book of Leviticus is very strangeness to us, and that promise by God are the two things that make this a really difficult lesson. <laughs> and so um, that second part uh, is not even dealt with in your, in your notes was, in fact, uh, the sacrificial system effective for granting forgiveness to the participants. Why is, it not <laughs> why is it not included? Well, it's included, not included for the same reason that Swiggum did not have in his original Bethel anything about revelation. There's too many different opinions. <laughs> and he didn't want to get caught up and, and be uh, criticized by one side or the other. And that, so the point is, is that throughout Christianity, that question regarding the participants in the worship services, uh, which included sacrifice in Old Testament Israel, were those effective in what it promised? So we're going to talk about that this morning. And um, uh, obviously, uh, I've never had an original thought in my life, but I have found good people who uh, have helped me understand things. And so I've taken their information and I've used that. Um, and uh, the people that I used are people that I respect and are humble in their own recognition that they may have it wrong, uh, but they themselves are scholars and have uh, worked hard at trying to find the truth. So the main point is that, which I mentioned just a moment ago, is that the children of Israel regardless of the fact that they were chosen people, they were subject to the same assaults by the devil as Adam and Eve were that caused them to sin. Okay. Now, Adam and Eve made a free will choice, but there was this outside force that tempted them to make that choice. So when you give somebody free will, it's not really fair to eliminate all the different stimuli around them that might, that might cause them to make one choice over another. That's not really free will anymore when you incubate somebody from the real world. And so the children of Israel were subject to the same kinds of assaults from Satan in the world. And so sin is still a problem. And sin separates from God. So we've got this idea of atonement. Now, atonement is an idea that is designed to deal with guilt, that is to say actual culpability or liability for doing wrong, and a sense of guilt, which is just how you feel. And the object that makes you feel guilty may or may not be wrong. You just think it is. Uh, but very often, of course, 
the sense of guilt goes along with actual disobedience. But the point is, and there are some people, I suppose, who can be guilty, but they don't have any sense of guilt. They just, uh, you know, they're basically uh, amoral narcissists. Um, but the people we're talking about are those who really are seeking the truth or seeking God. And so uh, they're going to have this sense of guilt. The idea is, is that here we have Israel whose job is to be a light to the nations, to basically be the missionary to the rest of the world, to tell the rest of the world who and what God is and why they should worship him only. That's their job. And we're told that over and over again. And we, it's easy to forget that that that's what their job was as we get further and further into the Old Testament and get into the uh, history of Israel, you're going to see that they really forgot that big time. And they got basically into coveting the privileges and the blessings of God, but forgot the obligation that they were supposed to be committed to, which was to be a light to the world. Well, they couldn't be a light to the world if they were burdened by the sense of guilt. When, if they were dealing with their own problems, they would be ineffective. And so in order to make them effective, this whole idea of atonement comes in here. Now, if you've read the book of Leviticus, congratulations. Uh, it is hard to get through um, because it is really dry. And as we've said, it's very, very strange. But let's talk about what the book of Leviticus really is, at least the first uh, 17 chapters. It basically is the handbook for the leader of the liturgical services. That's what it is. There is a handbook today called Pontifical Ceremonies, and it's used by the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And this particular handbook goes through the order of worship. It goes through the sequence. It goes through who's to do what, what the worship elements are, are supposed to be, where they're to be placed, how they're to be distributed. says nothing about what any of these things mean. It just lays out the order of worship. And if somebody found this, this book hundreds of years from now, they might think the same thing about that as we think about Leviticus. Leviticus is simply saying, this is how the worship is to take place. This is how you do it in order to do it properly. Now, if you had somebody who uh, got this pontifical ceremonies or any other order of worship, you know, the, the very... Uh, bulletin that we have is called the order of worship every single Sunday. And it just lists what's going to happen when. Uh, David McKechnie, who many of you know, was an absolute stickler for it being really, really right. We've gotten pretty loosey-goosey since then, but it was really strict as to how it was going to go. And, and I did a few minute for missions, and he was very kind about it, but he told me, when you do it at 11 o'clock, uh, you were 45 seconds long, so cut it down. <laughs> So, he was very, very strict about that. Well, it doesn't really say anything about how you're supposed to feel. What is the state of your heart? And that's the same thing with the book of Leviticus. And so we can give it 
kind of a past. We can forgive it now when we understand what its purpose is. It's just how you do it. So it does not include the words, the thoughts, the emotions of the worshiper as they go through this. So what I want to do is I thought what would be helpful, and as I've mentioned, none of these things are in the lesson. As a matter of fact, even though I think this is one of the most difficult lessons, certainly in the Old Testament that we're going to be going through, it is the shortest in Swiggum's notes. In mine, which is an older version, it's just two pages. In yours, I think it's two pages and a little bit. And so he doesn't go through the stuff we're going to go through now, which, uh, which is fine, but I, I, I didn't have the heart to simply go over these things, uh, just the, the part that Swiggum went through. I wanted to get a little bit deeper so that you could have a real appreciation for what is behind the liturgical service in Israel. So what I'd like to, uh, to go through is, first of all, what are the five general points behind sacrifice? Well, first of all, sacrifice, we have to understand, is a gift to God. We all understand that, that we would not, we would not disagree with that. We're told to give sacrificially. We are making a gift to God. And uh, the Hebrew cardinal principle was, don't come before the Lord with empty hands. So, but that really is just, in many ways, it's common courtesy. Uh, Betty said to me, we're going to go up and see our in-laws for Thanksgiving in Colorado. What should we bring them? So you bring a little present, and it establishes communion between you and the other person. Well, on a really grand scale, this is what we're doing with God. And the gifts were an outward symbol and accompaniment to prayer and worship. And uh, so we need to uh, not believe that these are a primitive group of people. They are not, by a long shot. Um, even though it, it, the, the whole part of Leviticus that deals with, deals with a sacrifice sounds pretty primitive to us. It really is not. So, for example, uh, when we read certain things, like when they did a whole burnt offering and uh, the animals being burned and the smoke went up, they will make statements like, it's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay. Well, they didn't really believe that. <laughs> they, they knew that God was spirit, that he's every place. They knew that. But it's very much like when we bring flowers to a gravesite. We don't really believe that the dear departed are partaking in the beauty and the, and the sweet aroma of those flowers. But it's a symbol. It is a deep emotional symbol. And that's what these are. That's what the, the sacrifices are in many ways. Okay, so the next important symbol is this. The blood is the life. Now, this is a really important concept that is a little bit foreign to us. But what I want you to keep your antennae up about as I go through this lesson is that much of what the book of Leviticus says about sacrifice is going to help us to understand much of what the New Testament writers say about Christ's sacrifice that has been a mystery. What the heck do they mean by that? So the book of Leviticus and understanding the book of Leviticus 
is really important. You won't get that from the book of Leviticus, but you get it from other parts of the Bible that talk about what should you be thinking, what should your attitude be when you do make the sacrifices. What is the attitude, behavior, thinking that's pleasing to God as you're making the sacrifice? And those are all through the scripture. There are a lot of them are in Psalms, and, but much of it is also through in the prophets. But you're not going to find it in the book of Leviticus, but they're all referring back to the book of Leviticus. So, let's take a look at this. Leviticus 17.11a says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. So the blood, which we see over and over again, which is sprinkled on everything, all the different uh, accoutrements in the tent of meeting that represent God, the altar, and uh, the, the various different things that, that represent an aspect of God. And so when the blood is uh, put over onto these things, you're giving the life of this animal over to God. Leviticus 17.14, For the life of every creature is the blood of it. And Deuteronomy 12.23, Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. Okay, so, how does this work? What happened was when there was a sacrifice, and the worshiper brought this very, very uh, expensive animal. It was to be an animal that didn't have a blemish. And keep in mind, that was the currency of the day, were animals. Coins were not invented until about 600 B.C. by the king of Lydia, Alieta. And he finally made some coins or made a gold and silver and stamped with a picture of an animal of some sort, which, which uh, was the denomination of that coin. So you might pay two owls, a snake, and a tortoise. <laughs> and that is what something cost. So they didn't have mediums of exchange back then like we do today that by themselves have no intrinsic value, but everyone agrees that they're, they'll accept it as a medium of exchange. What was considered wealth back then were animals. And so if you had a lot of uh, cows and bulls, you were a wealthy person. If you weren't so wealthy, maybe you had a lot of pigs. Yeah, you didn't have pigs. But maybe you had a lot of lambs, goats. In particular, goats were the lowest level, you might say. Uh, I don't think people really kept birds, um, but the people that did keep birds were those who sold animals to the worshipers as they went into, uh, went into worship. And that's actually what ended up happening. What ended up happening as not everybody was a farmer. Uh, maybe they worked on a farm, but they themselves did not own any animals, perhaps. Uh, they could go to the temple. This is in the New Testament times when they had a temple. And they would pay for an animal that was without blemish. So it's not, as it was back then, an animal that, you, that was in your family practically, and it was a precious animal to you. And uh, that wouldn't happen, of course, if you had a large herd. But it was an animal that you really wouldn't give up, except for the fact that you need to give an unblemished animal in the, in the interest of sacrifice. But as it turns out, uh, 
there was a practice and an industry that grew up, a cottage industry of people who sold animals for sacrifice. That's what got Jesus all upset when they were gouging the people and spending way, and they were charging way too much money for these and making it, a, making it something of a profit center. So, what we've got, hello Popeye, welcome. So, uh, that's what we have here is we have this animal that is given. Now, the way this worked is that the worshiper would come up and place his hands on the head of the animal. And in a way, he would identify with this animal. In his mind, he's identifying with this animal. And you might say his soul sinks into the soul of this very animal. And at that time, depending on what time in history you're talking about, either the worshiper cut the throat of the animal or the priest did. But in any case, the, the actual act of cutting the throat of this animal while the worshiper is in this ex- extremely emotional identification with the animal is very, very powerful. And the idea is this person is vicariously himself giving his life in the form of the blood of the animal over to God. And that's what the sacrifice was. You won't find that any place, of course, in the book of Leviticus. But that's the way the sacrifice took place. Now you can understand when you read commentaries and you hear Paul talk about, I identify with the death of Christ. That's, it's the same thing. It's a carryover from the whole sacrificial system of Israel. Identification with the vicarious sacrifice. That you yourself are dying. In the case of our belief in Christ, you're really dying to sin. Your old self has died. That's why Paul will say in Galatians that I have been crucified by Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And that's a hard thing to understand until you recognize what's happening in Leviticus. And so the book of Leviticus is not one of those books you say, oh, that's Old Testament, doesn't really have anything to say to me. No, no. It has a lot to say to us, and particularly what you might call the Old Testament commentary on the book of Leviticus, which, as I said, you'll find in Psalms and the Prophets that say, that's what, here's what a real sacrifice looks like. And here's what a sacrifice that is pleasing to God looks like. So uh, very, very important. So that the point is that these sacrifices do point toward Calvary in that way. So what are some of these um, parts of Scripture that help us understand what are the uh, ways we should think, or the way the Israelites, I should say, thought when they offered sacrifices? Well, here they are. Here's Psalm 51, 16 through 17. And that's David wrote this, and he's addressing God. And he says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Isaiah 66, 2 through 3 says, 
This is God speaking. Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. But whoever sacrifices, that is, without this attitude, a bull is like one who kills a man. In other words, anybody who sacrifices and doesn't have this attitude of humility is like someone who murdered another man when you kill an animal. So the book of Leviticus is not for animal cruelty at all. And whoever offers a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck, whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood, and whoever burns memorial incense like the one who worships an idol. In other words, you're going to completely corrupt the entire process if you don't have the right attitude. This, by the way, helps us to understand the probable reason for uh, Cain's sacrifice not being accepted, but Abel's was. The attitude wasn't right. That has to be the reason. Micah 6, 6 through 8. This is the, uh, the uh, person praying says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Oh, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 1, 11 through 17 says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing to me meaningless offerings. Stop doing wrong and learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Now all these are saying, not after the sacrificial system of Israel has been eliminated. It wasn't eliminated until 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. That's when the sacrificial system went away. Because that's where the sacrifices could take place. You could not do a sacrifice in places other than the temple. Or prior to the temple in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. So this is a time... These statements are being made when the sacrificial system was at its height. Proverbs 21, 3 and 27 says, To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. The sacrifice of the wicked is detestable, how much more so when brought with evil intent. <coughs> Proverbs 5, 8 says, The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. Hosea 6, 6 says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus quotes that twice in his ministry. And then Jesus says this in Matthew five twenty-three through 24. He says, if you're bringing a gift to me and you bring it to the altar, and before you get to the altar, you remember that your brother has something against you. Drop that gift and go and reconcile with your brother. Then come back and make your sacrifice. The parentheses meaning of that is your sacrifice won't mean anything until you do what you know you need to do. Go reconcile with that brother. Go make that restitution. Write that note. Go see that shut-in. That's what you need to do.
So, God says, though, that he had promised that if this or that gift was brought in this or that way, he would receive the gift. And we're told elsewhere that there is grace. There's grace there because he says you will be forgiven. So why is it that a life has to be lost? Well, it's the whole idea. It's not really a logical answer to it except for the idea of substitution. And that's the whole point behind um, behind atonement, really, is substitution, that is something else is going to die for you, identification, very important, you have to identify with the animal or in Christ's pers- uh, case, with that person. And then response. How is it that you respond to that? Okay, so... That's how uh, we are restored in that right relationship. And how is that done? We just talked about that. Very often, feasts followed. And this is a particular in the case of Thanksgiving uh, offerings, uh, which was voluntary. If you take a look at your list there, um, you'll see that there are different kinds of sacrifices. And if you'll notice, the burnt offering is a voluntary one. And uh, the grain offering is voluntary. This is all in the uh, right column, purpose. And the fellowship offering is voluntary. But the sin offering and the guilt offering, those two are mandatory. They are mandatory. So, in other words, every good Jew had to take part in that every year in a sin and guilt offering. Here's what's important about that, is that in Romans 8, 3, Paul refers to Christ's death as a sin offering. And you wouldn't really understand what the heck does that mean unless you understood Leviticus and what a sin offering meant. It's mandatory. Everyone had to do it. That's where we get two things, where we read in 2 Corinthians 10.5 that Christ died for everybody. For everybody. Now, that's not universalism, though. Sounds like it at first. But remember what we said about the person for whom the sacrifice is effective? The person has got the right attitude. So although Christ died for everyone, the effectiveness depends on what's their attitude. Toward God. And so it's, uh, it's, it's very important that we recognize that with respect to uh, Christ's death. The other thing is that it says it's mandatory. This is what helps me understand a passage that's always given me a little trouble. I don't know about you, but in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, as part of Peter's, one of Peter's speeches, he says, There is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ. And I've always wondered, what does he mean by by, that we must be saved? (laughs) Why didn't he just say, by which we're saved? But the Greek clearly says, by what we must be saved. Because it's mandatory. It's a mandatory sacrifice. And so, it's the book of Leviticus, of all places, 
that helps us understand some parts of the inscrutable need and the inscrutable effectiveness and uh, accomplishments of the crucifixion of Christ. So it is a, it's sort of a, a mega, a mega situation compared to the to the regular sacrifices. These feasts are very uh, important because they would be followed primarily uh, by the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and uh, which is part of fellowship, the fellowship offering. And these fellowship offerings were where you would get a community together and it would be a situation where uh, you might make a public confession about something and you'd ask your friends to come. So it would be something where your friends would come to this. And you would confess, I've done wrong to some of you here, and I've been a real pain, and so I'm sorry, and I hope you'll pray for me. Or someone who really needs help. And this is what's happening. I've got these situations going on. I'd like your, your help and prayers. Don't we do that when we have small groups and we meet? At the end, we usually ask for prayer requests. Very similar situation. We don't see that in the book of Leviticus, but that's what happened. Okay. Now, one of the major questions that I had is this idea that the sacrificial system of Israel points to cavalry. And in notes, you will see that very often in in books. But it seems like the editors want to stay away from an answer of that. They say it points to cavalry, but... Did those participants in the Old Testament sacrificial system, even if they did everything right and had the right attitude, were they saved? The book of Leviticus says they were. It says, your sins are forgiven. But what the book of Hebrews tells us is that they weren't forgiven the way they're forgiven under Christ. They're only forgiven at that moment. But they have to be done over and over and over again. That is the deficiency of the sacrificial system. And the author of Hebrews, who was writing to devout Orthodox Jews who had memorized practically the whole Old Testament, they knew Leviticus very well. And they also knew the commentary on Leviticus and Psalms and the Prophets. And he says the the sacrificial system, if it was really effective... It would have stopped long ago, once and for all. But that was only done under Christ. So what do we really mean when we say, when we read that God says, you do this and that in a certain way, your sins are forgiven? Well, first of all, we know, going through kind of an argument, you might say, there's no salvation without Christ. We know that for a fact. No one, we don't have any kind of an argument with that at all. We know that that's true. And uh, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And uh, we, we read over and over again that that is, uh, is, is not a point of dispute. John 10.9 says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he shall be saved. Acts 4.12, and there is no salvation uh, except through Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. 
So the issue revolves around, some people have said, well, was Christ present then? Was Christ present at these sacrifices? And we know that Christ was present in other forms. Christ was, was Jesus of Nazareth, a particular man who was born at a particular time, and that was the manifestation of God at that time. But we know that God was manifest through that second person of the Godhead in other ways earlier. So uh, Paul says that that rock in the desert from which water came, that was Christ who traveled around with them. And uh, we are given pretty strong evidence that some of these angels that talked was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So was Jesus Christ present? That's not anything that is revealed in Scripture at all. So we don't really know the answer to that. But we do know from Hebrews that the law, including the sacrificial law, was just a shadow or a foretaste of things to come. And so the sacrificial system was definitely a foretaste of the uh, complete and final and totally effective sacrifice by Jesus Christ. Here is one way I think that is, is not a bad way to look at it is that the sacrificial system of Israel, because they are told that they'll be forgiven, is like writing a check. So you write a check, it's just a piece of paper, but people accept it. In this case, you do a sacrifice, God accepts it. Because there is a reserve of resources behind that check that's going to allow it to clear. The reserve resource behind the sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament was Jesus Christ. And he accomplished it in such a way that those, the people who participated in the worship service where they had identified vicariously with that animal that was to be sacrificed, that that was like a check that had a good resource behind it, Jesus Christ. Now, at that time, they didn't know Jesus Christ. Uh, at that time, when this was put into effect, which was during the, um, the wandering in the wilderness, we're talking 1,400 years B.C., we hadn't had the prophets yet that talked about, in detail, a Messiah. The prophets that came, that primarily we're talking about 800 through 400 B.C. is primarily when the prophets that we have in the Bible were really active. They talk a lot about a coming Messiah. Now, it was still pretty vague and, and uh, shrouded in lots of mystery, but there's clearly this Messiah that's going to be coming, that's going to set everything right. The Jews believe it too. The Jews today believed it. That is, say, the Orthodox Jews. They just don't believe that Jesus was the one. They say, look around you. You telling me he set everything right? So... That is how we can kind of look at the sacrificial system of Israel. But like many things in the Bible, God gives us adequate information for us to make a decision for Christ and for us to be faithful. But he does not, by a long shot, give us all the information. (laughs) We're going to have lots of questions that go unanswered. But he wants us to do this. He wants us to talk about it. He invites us to discuss these things. So, let me close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father and God, I thank you so very much for this difficult lesson, but one that we need to know, and we thank you for 
granting it to us so that we have a better idea of understanding the great mystery of the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. Your son, Jesus Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You cleared a lot of things up, Jerry. Did we? Good. <laughs> when I read that, I was like, what is this? <laughs> the wrong lesson for you. you know. <laughs> I copied the next week. Yeah. You'll have it next week. You'll have it next week. Sure